Christmas. Romans chapter 5, and we are going to read together, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11 just to establish a bit of context. And because this is the Word of God, and you are the people of God, if you are able, would you please stand to hear from the God who still speaks in His Word? Romans 5, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, as he's borne along by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Notice, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Arguably, the most influential theologian of the 20th century was a Swiss Christian named Karl Barth. You'll see it spelled B-A-R-T-H. It's pronounced T-Karl Barth, okay? It's just something that I learned some years ago. I thought I would pass that along to you. And I don't recommend necessarily that you go out and read a lot of Karl Barth. I actually would take issue with a lot of what he wrote. But he is arguably the most influential theologian of the 20th century. Barth taught and wrote during the genesis of Hitler's Nazi Germany. In fact, he is one of the brave scholars who overtly opposed Adolf Hitler. In addition to many other works, Karl Barth authored one of the longest systematic theologies ever written, a work that totaled somewhere around 9,300 pages. Of course, contained in a series of volumes. In fact, Barth published somewhere in the ballpark of 600 works during his lifetime. Can you imagine this? So his influence is difficult to overstate, okay? Well, on at least one occasion, perhaps two, it's difficult to tease out, but on at least one occasion, a student publicly asked Karl Barth if he could summarize his life's work in a single sentence or a single statement. 
Bart replied, yes, I can. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. The most elemental truth of Christianity, the love of God in Christ, is indeed one of the most profound realities of the gospel. A reality that leaves some of the most brilliant and erudite scholars stammering and staggering for words. Well, this morning, what we're going to do, this final Advent, Lord's Day morning, we are going to look together at the love of God in Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, really. And it's the second part of verse 5 through verse 11 that we're interested in. And if you're taking notes, we're going to attempt to expound this text and the love of God in this text in three sections, okay? Three sections concerning the love of God in Romans chapter 5. First of all, we're going to identify what I would call the application of God's love. And Paul begins with this in this section that begins in verse 5, or the second part of verse 5, the application of God's love. Secondly, we're going to discover the demonstration of God's love. After the apostle Paul unpacks the application of God's love, he turns to the demonstration of God's love. And then finally, after looking at the application and the demonstration of God's love, we are going to conclude our time together unpacking the assurance of God's love. Perhaps even the assurance that God's love grants to us. So application, demonstration, and Assurance. Let's begin by looking together at the application of God's love, looking down at the text with me, verse 5, and we'll read all of verse 5 there. Paul writes, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love, note, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Now, to build a little bit of context here, the Apostle Paul has been concerned with a couple of topics. First of all, peace. And Pastor Tim actually preached on this topic, chapter 5, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul has been concerned to unpack this topic of peace, and in particular, peace with God. Secondly, the Apostle Paul can't speak about peace without simultaneously speaking about Hope, and we actually see this at the beginning of verse 5. This is the kind of hope that does not put us to shame. It's a confident hope, a certain hope that something indeed is going to happen because it's predicated on what has already happened. Christ, of course, will come back because it's predicated on Christ's first coming. In fact, I want you to notice as Paul is transitioning from talking about hope, and really it's no transition at all, by the way, because all of this is bound up in Christian hope. In verse five, as Paul is making a kind of shift in his argument, he argues that hope does not put us to shame because, here's the reason, here's the reason or the cause, hope, Christian hope, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Don't miss that imagery. I'm going to unpack that imagery in just a moment. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit takes the Father's love for us and applies that love within us. This is one of 
the works or the acts of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And Paul's language here about God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit is a way, by the way, of referring to a number of Old Testament texts. Let me give you a couple of those. There are a series of them, actually. If you look up, perhaps you've got a concordance or Bible software, and you can look up poured out or poured in, especially as it relates to the Holy Spirit, or a change of heart, the work that God is accomplishing in the new covenant by means of the Spirit within his people, you'll find a series of promises. Here are a couple. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Here God promises an internal change of heart for his people when he places his law within them. That is to say, Jeremiah tells of a time when God is no longer going to write his commandments and his statutes on tablets of stone externally. But a day is coming when God in his kindness and through the work of the Spirit is going to write his commandments, write his statutes, write his law on the heart in such a way, of course, that this produces an internal change that manifests itself in external behavior and affections. Elsewhere, God promises to pour out his spirit on humanity. So Jeremiah 31 is an example of one of God's promises concerning an internal change wrought by the spirit of God in the hearts of God's people. But there are other locations where we find this more explicit imagery of God pouring out his spirit. Joel chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 is perhaps one of the more popular passages. This is the passage, by the way, that's quoted by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. But Joel writes these words, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There's the imagery. God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. That is to say, no one is going to be accepted from this. Everyone is included in this. Men and women, adults, children, all the above included in this work that God promises to accomplish of pouring out his spirit in the new covenant. And so God's promises, these are a couple of examples, God's promises, on the one hand, to change the hearts of his people, to write his law on their hearts, to change their affections, and God's promises to pour out his spirit all come to fulfillment when he pours out his love, according to the Apostle Paul, pours out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has now been given to us. Now, there's a challenge when you're interpreting this text, and and you may not catch the challenge if you're just reading through it in an English, English translation. You may, depending on the nature of the English translation you're reading, the challenge we face in interpreting this text is in verse 5, I should say one of the challenges we face in interpreting this text. If you're holding the English Standard Version, you'll notice the simple phrase, God's love, in verse 5. Do you see that? Look down at your text. God's love. Do you see this? The ESV translates this phrase, God's love. Well, they've made an interpretive decision. The grammar is ambiguous. In other words, this might be a reference to God's love for us. And so we would translate it God's love. 
But it also could be a reference to our love for God. The grammar doesn't tell us. There's nothing in the grammar itself that suggests that this is either God's love for us or our love for God. And by the way, I don't disagree with the way the English Standard Version opted to translate this. As I've told you on countless occasions, I'll tell you again, they didn't consult with me. No idea why. We could think of a few reasons, couldn't we? But I don't take issue with the translation, but let me make a suggestion before you all and to you all. I actually think that given the context, the ambiguity communicates. In this context, the ambiguity communicates both. I think love of God here is both God's love for us and our resulting love for God. Now, I do think the Apostle Paul has at the forefront of his mind, if we can ever know such a thing, I'm not in his mind in case you're wondering, but if we can ever know such a thing, I do think the Apostle Paul has at the forefront of his mind God's love for us. But I don't think the Apostle Paul can actually talk about God's love for us without simultaneously understanding that that love for us produces love in us for God. Let me give you a couple of reasons for this. On the one hand, Paul goes on to focus on God's love for us in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. God shows his love, what? For us. And so clearly the Apostle Paul has in mind God's love for us. And I do think, again, this is foremost. On the other hand, the work of the Holy Spirit is something that is happening where in verse 5? It's happening in our hearts. God's love is being poured into our hearts. And this is a way of talking about an internal change that produces a change of affections and a different inclination of the heart in such a way that God's love actually leaves an indelible imprint on us and in us. And so the result is that we love as we have been loved. God's love impacts us. We could say it this way. God's love for us engenders love within us. Love within us for God. And we could even go a step further. This is what John does. Love for God and by extension, love for whom? Others, right? This is very similar to the way John will argue. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, for example, John writes these words, Beloved, and by the way, beloved, we could translate that, ones who are loved. Loved ones. Loved ones, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. There it is. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That is to say, as God has loved you, you love others. And he goes so far as to say that This is a part of your spiritual birth. It's inevitable. It's necessary. One of the privileges I have of serving as a senior pastor over the years is spending time counseling couples. And uh, these, these opportunities have surfaced in different contexts. Sometimes it's perhaps when a husband and a wife are experiencing conflict in their marriage. Other times it's it's a couple that's aspiring to get married, and so it's premarital counseling. Either way, it's, it's a tremendous opportunity and a sacred privilege. And I have found, this is anecdotal, but I have found that people often give love in the ways they have been given love. And I said often, there are exceptions to this, 
And we have our own unique idiosyncrasies, but let me give you an example of this. For example, the way I was raised and the ways that my, my parents showed their love for me has impacted the way I show my love for Tana. In fact, there have been times when, you know, I've done something or not done something, committed or omitted. And the response is, you know, is something like, well, well, sweetheart, I did that because I love you. And she said, well, that didn't communicate love to me. Rarely, this is, right, it's rare this happens. (laughs) I can no longer lie to you and get away with it. I mean, you already know who I am. Sinner saved by grace, amen? And there are other times when, you know, she's been able to communicate to me. I've asked her, so, you know, help me understand how to communicate love to you. Now, by the way, there have been times she's told me that, and I still don't do it, okay? So just to be frank, um, she's been telling me how to love her for near 20 years now, and I'm still learning, I hope. But I've been deeply impacted by the ways I've been loved. Now, again, that gets contextualized. I have my own idiosyncrasies. I have my own nuances, right? My own characteristics, But love impacts others. I remember hearing Tim Keller say this one time. Tim Keller made the comment and observation. He says, love begets love. And that's so very true. Now, now, Tim could have been making an exegetical observation. I don't know what he was doing. But in the text, we could argue that. Well, if love begets love from human to human, how much more? So the way I've been loved impacts the way I love others. How much more? when I've received divine love. So that the way God has loved me now, what happens? Is the way I am inclined to love others. Isn't that tremendous? That's the work of the Spirit of God. And this is, of course, why, you know, Jesus made comments like this. How will others know you, church? By your love because he's so confident that you're going to be impacted by God's love for you. This is also why John will argue that if you're not impacted by God's love for you, in such a way that you're not showing others love, John will argue you don't know God because God is love. And how can you love God whom you cannot see? when you can't even love your brother or your sister whom you can see. And so this is all the work of the Spirit of God applying, that's the language that I've chosen to use, and it's not language that originates with me, applying God's love in the gospel to us and within us. Secondly, in addition to the application of God's love, secondly, we see the demonstration of God's love a passage that is so very familiar to many Christians. But in some ways, if I'll meditate on it afresh, it feels brand new. Look with me at verses 6, 7, and 8. The demonstration of God's love. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here we find a stark contrast between God's love and our love. And I've pointed this out to you in the past, I believe, as we've walked through various texts, but I want to point it out again because it surfaces here. There's a massive difference between divine love and human love. And there are a number of things we could say about this, but I would summarize it in this way. Human love, by definition, is reactive. Divine love, by definition, is proactive. That is to say, when we love someone, we are responding to some perceived value or worth in the object of our love. It's reactive. My poor bride, I'm using her a couple of times this morning, aren't I? She's tremendous. She perseveres in the faith through it all. I, I began to love Tana because of something lovable that I perceived in her. That's intrinsic to human love. Now, there's a superficial way of talking about that, right? So, you know, a, a young man is initially attracted to a young woman, oftentimes, by what he sees. That's a gift of the Lord. It comes from him, but it's a reactive love. That may trigger a relationship. But it goes deeper than that, even beyond the superficial level. So even with regard to emotions or spiritual strength and maturity that we perceive in somebody else, again, we perceive something in someone else, something worthy of our affections, worthy of our love, and we react with love. You see? That's what it means to love as a human. God's love... God's love is never reactive. It's proactive. God never, as it were, responds to some perceived value in the object of his love. In fact, some theologians have said it this way, and this is, this is mind-boggling, but I love it. I love it. I love hitting a ceiling intellectually because this is God we're talking about. The cause of God's love is in God. That's how theologians have talked about this for so many years. The cause of our love is outside of us. You know, it's, we're acted upon first, and then we respond, we react. But the cause of God's love is in God. God is the cause of his love. And so he's not responding to some perceived value or worth in us. And this is, this is the love, by the way, that Paul describes in Ephesians 3.19 as the love that surpasses knowledge. Paul prays that we would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. That is, this love is qualitatively different than yours. You can't really wrap your mind around it. Notice the ways the Spirit describes us in these verses. So let me just highlight this a bit further. How are we described in these few verses? We are weak, ungodly sinners. Not a flattering description, right? I mean, how's that for a Hallmark card? 
And, and Hallmark cards consistently focus on the reactive aspect of human love, right? I mean, I love you because you're just tremendous. You've done so much. I can't imagine life without you. You've loved me through good times, through bad times, right? That's how Hallmark cards read. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's, it's thoroughly human. God's love, on the other hand, here, here's God's Hallmark card. I love you. You're ungodly, you're weak, you're a sinner. This is also one of the reasons why, I don't want to get too far off on this, but a little bit, okay? This is one of the reasons why I think I'm, I'm consistently concerned in evangelical circles when we sing about God's love as we, as we would sing about a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We sing about God as if he were obsessed with us in the ways that, you know, one high school boyfriend might be obsessed with his high school girlfriend. Uh, and misses it entirely. God's love for us is not the, that kind of romantic love, as it were. Now, there's more to it than that, and I don't want to get too far off into this, but, but when you hear these songs that talk about the love of God, ask yourself the question, does it fit God's proactive love? Or is it describing God's love in terms of our reactive love? I hear some songs and I think, boy, God must be really obsessed with who I am. And I know, I know there are well-meaning brothers and sisters who, who wrote these songs, I hope. But well-meaning brothers and sisters can be dead wrong. Right? No, God isn't obsessed with us. God is love. And his love for us comes to us not because of any perceived worth in us. The cause of his love is in him. This is similar to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We were in Deuteronomy chapter 7 not that long ago. We're going to be back in Deuteronomy soon. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses is talking about why God chose Israel. And what was the reason he gave? He actually tells them why he didn't choose them. Yeah, he didn't choose you because you were more numerous, because you were mighty, because you were good looking. Yeah, he didn't say good looking, but he could have put it there, right? He didn't choose you because of anything in you. In fact, he chose you because he loved you. Well, how do he love you? Why did he love you? Well, he loved you because he loved you. God's love is the cause of his love. The nearest we get to this, I'm going to mention Tim Keller again just because I heard him give a sermon years ago on this and it impacted me. The, the nearest we get to this, I think, quoting Tim Keller, is, is the love that we experience as a father or a mother of a newborn child. Now, I said the nearest. I, I don't think there's a one-for-one -one correspondence. But we oftentimes love that newborn child. Why? Because of perceived worth, well, yes, it's reactive to some extent, but how much is that newborn child going to give to us in the coming weeks, moms? <laughs> Plenty of reason to love, right? <laughs> and so I think we get a glimpse of it there. The love that a parent has for a newborn child carries this glimmer of proactivity. Isn't that beautiful? And it makes sense, of course, as people made in the image of God. So what this means, church family, what this means, friends, is that you mustn't wait to become worthy before you've experienced God's love for you in Christ.
That's not the love God has for you. God does not love you because you are worthy. Rather, let's say it this way, you are worthy because God loves you. God's love for you is what grants you worth. It is God's love demonstrated in Christ Jesus that actually fills us, as it were, with value, worth, and dignity. One of the hymns that used to be sung at many church meetings was the song, Just As I Am. Do you know this song? Some of you are scared at this point. The longest altar calls you've ever experienced took place while singing just as I am. But if you've ever considered the words just as I am, it's actually quite rich. Just as I am without one plea. Just as I am. Don't miss that. Because it's all I have. Without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. We have to come just as we are because there's no other way we can come. We can't clean ourselves up. Don't waste your time trying to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. And I've heard this countless times as I'm talking to someone about embracing Jesus Christ. And then the response goes something like this. Yes, I know, but let me get some things cleaned up. I want to stop doing this and start doing this, and then I'll come to Jesus. They've missed it. They've missed it altogether. It is not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. Christ says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so if you're ever going to experience the love God has for you in Christ Jesus, it will be experienced as an unworthy sinner. There's no other way to experience it. And so I do ask you this morning, have you come to Christ in your sickness? Have you come to Christ in your sin? Have you come to Christ in your unworthiness? Have you come to Christ out of your own brokenness? Have you come to Christ recognizing that God's love for you is a proactive love? He pursues you not because of any dignity or worth you possess or you offer, but because his love actually grants you such dignity and worth. Have you embraced Jesus Christ who lived in your place? in perfect obedience to the Father who died in your place and for your sins, who was buried and who was raised from the dead in glorious power on the third day. Have you embraced Christ and in embracing Christ experienced God's demonstrated love for you? Don't wait to get cleaned up because it'll never happen. And if that's where you are this morning, then please come and talk to us before you leave this place. Have a conversation with somebody. You can grab me after the service or you can walk out of these doors and take a left. And on the right-hand side out there, there's a room called Crossroads and there will be a pastor in there who would love to visit with you and pray with you and talk with you about Christianity and about what it means to follow this loving God who has demonstrated his love in Jesus Christ, his son. Church family, the cross doesn't answer every one of our questions. It doesn't. It doesn't answer every one of our questions about God. It doesn't resolve all of our theological tensions. But it does answer this question. What is God's disposition in relation to us? 
He loves us. We may not be able to answer the question, why? Why is there suffering? Right? Why is there cancer? Why is there death? Why do young ones die? Why do we grow old and die? Of course, we can answer the question of sin or with sin. But again, why did God allow this? Why did God ordain this? We'll never get the answer to all of those questions, I would imagine, in a way that puts a nice logical bow on it. But the cross does answer this question. What is God's disposition in relation to us? He loves us. Have you experienced his demonstrated love? And this is, by the way, we talked beforehand. I was talking to Stephanie and Ray, a couple others standing around. Pastor Brett was here. And I asked this question. I said, have we ever sung Charles Wesley's song, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling? And we're not going to do that right now for a couple of reasons. But consider even the first phrase of the hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. There is no love comparable to this love. Wesley got it. Do you know this love this morning? Well, last, in addition to the application of God's love and the demonstration of God's love, we find the assurance of God's love. So look down at the text with me again, verses 9, 10, and 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, I want you to notice Paul's logic in the text. Since we have been justified, that is declared righteous by God through faith in Christ. So God has declared us righteous if we've trusted in Jesus. And he's declared us righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, Christ's obedience for us. Paul goes on to say, since we have already been reconciled to God in Christ, that is to say, we were once enemies of God, but now through the work of Jesus Christ and God's love demonstrated, and through faith in Christ, we've been reconciled to God. We're no longer enemies. We're actually sons and daughters, as the Apostle Paul is going to go on to say in Romans chapter 8. Well, since all of that has been the case, we can be confident that we will be saved in the future when Christ returns. That's his logic. Brothers and sisters, since you've been reconciled to God, he didn't reconcile you to himself to abandon you when Jesus Christ returns. And so Paul says... God's love actually, God's love demonstrated in Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit, that love assures us of our future salvation. We can be confident that when Jesus Christ returns, we will be received into the Father's presence on the basis of Christ. And I've oftentimes, as a father, reasoned with my children in a similar way. I don't know if it's been successful or not, but I've tried you know, when they're having a difficult time perhaps trusting me on a particular issue, it may be, you know, for example, there have, been, there have been times when they've been hungry or thirsty. And I've said something like, you know, I'm going to get you water, I'm going to get you something to drink, and they're just so terribly hungry or thirsty, right? And they've learned this from their father. 
And they say things like, I'm starving. By the way, I've never been starving. But I use the phrase to communicate emphasis. I'm starving or I'm terribly thirsty. And I've, and I've responded in, in a way that's comparable to something like this. Sweethearts, I have fed you and given you drink for many years. Since you were born, I've been there. When you were hungry, we fed you. When you were thirsty, we gave you drink. What makes you think today we've decided to abandon you to die? (laughs) It's incredibly successful. But this is similar to the logic the Apostle Paul is using. I said similar. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, the Father has reconciled you to himself through Jesus Christ. He's declared you righteous in his presence while you were a sinner. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. If that's the case, how much more will you be saved by Christ's life? That is, by means of Christ's resurrection, ascension, intercession, his prayers for you, and his promised future return. God's love assures us not only that we are saved, but that we will finally be saved when Jesus Christ comes back. And this is what Advent is all about, isn't it? We're waiting for the observance of Christ's first coming, first Advent. But Christ's first coming or first Advent serves to assure us of his second coming. And so we continue to wait. And if the Lord tarries, for another week. Well, wouldn't it be great if he didn't? But if the Lord tarries for another week after Advent is over, we will continue to wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. But we can be sure that indeed he will fulfill them. Now, there's a detail in the text that I do want to draw your attention to. Look down at verse 9 with me. I believe it's the second part of verse 9. We'll read all of verse 9 together. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, that is, by Christ, from the what? Wrath of God. This is a terribly popular notion today. But we can't really begin to understand our salvation unless we understand what we have been saved from. Years ago, R.C. Sproul, who's with the Lord now, R.C. Sproul told the story, and it's in print. I believe it's in his book, Saved from What? He actually called the book by the title of the question that he asked. But R.C. Sproul told the story of a gentleman stepping in front of him. Sproul was on his way to teach a class, and a gentleman stepped in front of him and, and asked R.C., are you saved? He didn't know the man. There had been no conversation leading up to the question. And R.C. responded appropriately. He asked, say from what? And he said the man began to stumble and 
and stammer. But from what are we saved in the text? God's wrath. And this is what Sproul was getting at. Our offer of salvation to others, by the way, is empty if people don't understand what they're being offered salvation from. They're not being offered salvation primarily from a lack of a fulfilled life. They're not being offered salvation out of a a failed marriage. In fact, a good friend of mine actually, his marriage failed because he came to Jesus in faith. It may be that coming to Christ ruins your family in this life. They're not being offered salvation out of not having the kind of academic success they desire or vocational, occupational success that they desire. They're not being offered salvation out of a lack of popularity, lack of prestige. They're being offered salvation out of and from God's eternal indignation against sinners. It is indeed a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So from what do we say in the text? God's wrath. If we've come to know and treasure Jesus Christ, we are saved from God's future indignation and future judgment against sinners. And so then we can be confident when we stand in his presence. A holy God promises to embrace us on the basis of Christ and even through the transformative work of the Spirit of God applying the gospel to our hearts. If we're honest, I think, this emphasis as fallen sinners, as rebellious sinners, this emphasis on God's wrath in the message of Christianity is off-putting. In fact, there's a common narrative that assumes that God's wrath is contrary to his love. This isn't beat up on popular Christian music morning. But you're probably hard-pressed to find a popular Christian song that is singing about God's righteous indignation against sinners. It's just not positive and encouraging, is it? It's not. We are closer to the truth, I think, when we understand that divine wrath is an expression of God's holy love. We're closer there. It's not that wrath is contrary to God's love. No, wrath is an expression of his holy love. I can't help but think of of another scholar, a, a scholar, again, that I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to read, but a brilliant scholar nonetheless, Richard Niebuhr, 20th century scholar. He wants to find Christian theological liberalism Christian theological liberalism in this way, and I think it applies oftentimes today to our tendencies. Niebuhr said this. Here's the message he argued of Christian theological liberalism. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And these kinds of compromises consistently begin with a desire 
to see more and more people come to know Jesus Christ. They do. I think, I think that so many people are driven by a desire to see people come in the door and embrace Jesus Christ. And so over time, that desire eclipses a commitment to the truth of the gospel and they accommodate the gospel. And the result of a gospel accommodation is no gospel at all. So what are we sharing? We're sharing a message that is quite offensive to the rebellious sinner who shakes his or her fist at God. You will not rule over me. The message we are sharing with such a sinner is the first step for them of their salvation is to recognize that they were not created to rule over their own life. That they're in rebellion against God's righteous rule and as a result, they have merited God's eternal wrath. And God in his mercy and love, how about that? I'm gonna silence it. Oh, you silenced it, didn't you? Excellent. God in his mercy and his love has provided an escape, as it were, out of his righteous indignation and out of his wrath. As many have said, and Romans 5, 9 testifies, we are saved by God from God. That's the good news of the gospel. We are saved by God from God. Well, this morning, we have identified three realities, if you will, three observations in the text concerning the love of God. First of all, God's love for us has been applied within us by the Holy Spirit. So we have the application of God's love, and this application actually produces in us love for God and love for others. Secondly, we've seen that God's love has been demonstrated in the death of Christ for unworthy Sinners, love divine, all loves excelling. And then third, God's love assures us that as we have been reconciled to God, through the death of Christ, we will be saved from God's wrath when Jesus Christ returns. In words that date back to the medieval era and popularized by Frederick Lehman in the 20th century, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, grant us the joy of knowing your love demonstrated for us in Christ applied to us and within us by the Holy Spirit. Grant us to know the love that surpasses 
knowledge. And grant us, Father, to love in the ways that we have been loved. Leave in us an indelible imprint. One that produces an unceasing love for you and an unceasing love for others. Do this, Father, as we continue to wait. As we wait for the climax of your love. When Jesus Christ splits the skies and comes to rescue us as his own. Thank you for your assurance and the confidence we have, knowing that when that day arrives, we can be confident. We can rest at peace knowing that as we've been reconciled to you through the death of your son, so we will be saved from your wrath. And may it be, O God, that we leave this place to declare and proclaim this message of salvation to others who still remain under your wrath. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power and presence of your Spirit. And all God's people said,